living with amputations, uh, wheelchairs, surgeries, um, you know, facial disfigurement, all these things that I, I was going through, you know, I was going to endure that because I had a why to, to do it for. I think if I'd have been a single man on my own with no child, you know, no little boy, um, no Lucy, life would have been very, very different. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Fuck Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with Alex Lewis. And a few years ago, nobody'd ever heard of Alex Lewis. And if you'd asked Alex Lewis then if he would ever be famous for anything, he would absolutely have told you that it was very, very unlikely. And then one day he got a cold. It was November. His, uh, his son was two and a half and at daycare. He ran a pub, his girlfriend, partner ran a pub. And he picked it up from his child or Sam or he picked it up from Lucy or he picked it up from one of the regulars at, at the pub he ran. But a few weeks later, he was in hospital having one of his arms and both of his legs amputated. His life turned upside down. And so today I'm chatting to him about what does it take to go through something like that? What are the highs and lows of that experience? What could we any of us learn from that and what's he doing now now he's the director of two startups with people from imperial college he's on a mission to make wheelchairs affordable he's working with setting up wheelchair manufacturing facilities in remote parts of the world he's hand cycled up the highest mountain one of the highest mountains in africa um he's road testing a new off-road hand cycle in Salisbury Plain next weekend with a view to doing an expedition to Mongolia next year. This is an incredible story. Um, I, I met Alex recently and he was good enough to come and speak at the summit that we ran a few weeks ago in September. And he was the highest rated speaker on the day. That day we had uh, eight speakers and ran six workshops and Alex got the highest rating. And so I thought, I must see if he's available and get him on the podcast. So I'm delighted to have chatted with him today. We've explored some of the things that he didn't talk about when he spoke to clients and, and guests at the summit. So absolutely brilliant chatting with him today. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I had a great time talking with him. So before uh, the past seven years happened, I was a, a, a struggling landlord of a, a, a pub not too far from where you are, Don, in a little village called Lockley. 
Um, and I was a stay-at-home father to my uh, two-and-a-half-year-old son, Sam. Uh, Lucy, mother half, she was running another restaurant not about 10, 15 minutes away from the pub. And we were living above the pub in Lockerley as a family. Um, and our day-to-day work was getting Sam up, you know, changing nappies, all that sort of thing. Lucy go to work and then she'd come back. Oof, gone midnight, one in the morning most days. Um, and I'd be uh, at the King's Arms, um, not not exactly front of house, more stood by the bar, socialising. <laughs> you know what we say? With a coconut and Guinness through the day and some wine at night and some good food. Um, I think I enjoyed my role a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> Was the pub was the pub a success? No, not really. Um, <laughs> we, it, it wasn't. I mean, it, it was a very very hard uh, slog. I mean, we we took it on um, with the idea that we'd have two managers in place, two young lads that we were one had worked for us before. Another chap was a, a nephew of an investor, and we were never we never thought we'd end up living above the pub above the restaurant. Um, and we never thought we'd be in it seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And, and all this turned on its head in the, in the space of about three years. And it was very, very difficult. It's a, it seems a bit weird, but it's quite a strange area. Um, and I think small village pubs like that were almost on the way out at that point. It was hard. When the government, the Conservative government, many years ago turned around and said, well, every village and she'll have one pub in it at least. That is very hard to sustain. You know, in reality, you probably need one pub in about six villages so they can all support that one site. Yeah. So it was hard to get repeat custom. It was hard to, um, we were so far in the middle of nowhere, you know, people getting taxis out, taxis back. It wasn't really viable. Um, So we tried lots of things in the garden we built. Uh, pods and um, little wooden pods in the garden so we could have had a great socially distanced party in the garden <laughs> if we now. Um, uh, but we invested a lot of time and money into it but it was it you know soon I think when I fell ill I think we closed the closed the site about three months later I think yeah and so just location then it was just the location of that site was the wrong yeah, location. I mean, I, I was a, I was a terrible landlord. I mean, I was the world's worst. Um, and I I never thought I'd end up being in that position from a, a, a job perspective. You know, Lucy and I weren't taking any wage at the time, so it was a labour of love for the best part of only 18 months, I suppose, probably a bit more than that. Yeah. And I think if, I, if I'd been a bit more focused and hands-on, um, albeit somehow managing to look after Sam, then we could have, it might have elongated it slightly, but I don't think it would have survived. Okay. You know, I think, you know, it was, it was past the point of no return and I went, I think. And then you mentioned there that you got ill. What, what happened? Yes. Wow. It was, uh, it was November, 2013. Everyone had coughs and colds and the weather was a bit sporadic, so the least. Um, and I remember, I think Sam had croup at the time, and then I caught a cold, and then I just assumed I caught it from either him or one of the customers coming in. Um, and after a couple of weeks, it got worse and worse and worse, and it was flu-like in the end. 
And then I, I woke in the middle of the night one night and there was, I saw blood in my urine. Um, went back to bed, said to, my, said to Lucy, I said, look, darling, I'm, this is really bad. I feel dreadful. Um, she said, look, go to sleep in the morning. If you still feel bad, you know. You've got man flu. Bad. What are you complaining about? <laughs> Stop moaning about it. Get over it. Um, and then, yeah, in the morning, she, she'd gone to open up the Greyhound on the other side. And I woke up and my skin had begun to turn purple all, my, all over my arms, my legs, um, over my face. Uh, I was probably semi-conscious at best. I couldn't, I couldn't function correct. I couldn't put my clothes on. I tried to button the shirt up, couldn't do it. Um, and then I remember staggering downstairs with a knock on the back door. Um, and I, I, I just remember getting to the back door, managing to unlock it, and then some, Lucy and my stepfather, the other side of the door, when they opened it up, they just recoiled in horror to what they saw. I, I was a complete mess. Um, and the rest of it is pretty sketchy, but I think they, they sat me down. Paramedics came out very quickly, um, which is a great result from where we lived, really, in the middle of nowhere. And um, when they got to me, they stuck me in the back of the ambulance with Lucy. Um, and they said, look, we need to get him to intensive care. You know, he's got probably 20, 25 minutes to live. Um, you know, we probably had a 30-minute journey on a good day to Winchester. It was a Sunday morning, so there was no road, there was no traffic on the roads. I arrived just in time, and within minutes of going through the double doors in Winchester, I was on life support. Wow. So it was very quick, very, it was just whirlwind. We didn't know what on earth was going on, and lots of questions being asked. Uh, us tried by Lucy and my stepfather and me, trying, to, trying our best to sort of understand what's happening and, and answer these questions from the consultants and the doctors. I mean, the amount of people that swarmed around me when I came in was just incredible. Um, but, there, you know, after that, I was on life support for uh, about four days, I think. That. Wow. And then you came round? Yeah, I did. Well, that was, that was uh, courtesy of a consultant by the name of uh, Jeff Watson, and he... He tried something that hadn't been looked at properly, I don't think, in the UK in regards to strep A, which by that point, Lucy and, um, and my family knew that I had strep A. Not that they really understood what that meant. But he said, to, after three days, I was supposed I had 3% chance of survival. And he, he, he said to my mother and Lucy, look, you better go away tonight and prepare to say your final goodbyes in the morning. We can wake him. He won't be able to hear you, but you'll be able to say whatever you need to say. And then we'll we'll let him let him slip off. And then through the night, um, I began to rally. And in the morning, I, I woke up lying in hospital bed, looking up at the ceiling, thinking, "I don't live here. What's <laughs> what's going on here?" <laughs> so yeah. And what is strep A then? It's very common. I mean, the Americans they all they come down with strep throat. You know, in the UK, we might get a sore throat and a, a, a cold. But in the US, it's, it's, it's mainly termed as strep. So you can get, you can get A, B, C, uh, D, E, F, G, I think, of strep, and a few more letters after that. Um, uh, but the strep A that I got, it led to uh, sepsinia, toxic shock syndrome, necrotizing fasciitis. Um, I was 
I was on dialysis for six, seven weeks, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it, it was a, a, a torrid time physically. And so, what um, when you ended up leaving hospital? What what condition were you in? So when I left, I had a partial skin flap over my face. I lost the majority of all my lips and the skin around the mouth. Um, I lost the tops of my ears slightly, end of my nose. Um, I lost my left arm above the elbow. I lost both legs above the knee. And I had a pioneering um, surgery to try and save my right arm which at that point was deemed absolutely mission critical. So I had a chance of any kind of independence when I left hospital. Um, so they fused my entire left shoulder and basically wrapped it around my, my right arm. They stripped my entire arm of flesh and muscle from my wrist up to just below my shoulder. And then they wrapped my, my left shoulder onto my right arm. And that was deemed, A, it was incredible, because they even dreamt that up in the first place, the guys over in Salisbury, because I'd moved at that point. But yeah, so we, I left hospital with a, a hand. It wasn't functioning at the time, but it was, work, it was the nerve growth was happening, which I think mm -hmm. is a millimetre a day, I think. Um, and yeah, then I went home in, in that condition. Wow. Back to the pub. No, no, pub had gone by then. We, Lucy and Sam, uh, were living out of suitcases at friends' houses, family houses. And we very, very luckily got hold of a, a farmer in Stockbridge who had a, a tied house available. And there was a bedroom downstairs and a, a bathroom that we could feasibly work around. Um, and they heard about what was going on and they offered that to us. So we, we moved in. Um, I think Lucy moved in two days before I came out of Salisbury Hospital. So we were all living together in a, a very strange and new, not only circumstance, but a, a property as well. Blimey. They're just the, the amount of change, dislocation, stress that that must have put everybody under. Yeah. I mean, I would, although I might have gone through it physically, I certainly, I was very, very well cared for wrapped up in hospital um, with people in and out of your room all the time. Lots of, you know, I had a really, really great social life in some respects because our room was full of mates and, you know, joy of laughter and everybody taking the piss, really. Um, but for Lucy and my mum and my stepdad, my dad and Sam, you know, poor little Sam and all of this, you know, I think they had the rougher time of it all. Um, you know, I didn't really know for the first three months which way was up I was so heavily drugged but every time you know you see it on programs where you see the somebody saying goodbye to a patient and then they're wheeled through the double doors into a theatre and you don't see them for periods of time you know they were living through that every other day for the first three months surgeries lasted between 45 minutes and 22 hours you <laughs> know it was just relentless um, and, every, and each time there was risk associated to each surgery you know so it was it was far worse for them terrible time for them yeah and so then how do you go about coming out of hospital and rebuilding a life well i was lucky i mean i i, I chose well in life because a lucy was incredibly strong 
but I had a great best mate as well. And he, he and I lived together in Winchester for a few years. And then he one day he stood up. He said, right, that's it. I'm going to France to do a ski season. And I said, right, good luck. See you in six months. Um, he came back. He said, right, I'm going back out. And he packed up his things from the flat. And it, I haven't seen him since. He's never come home. And uh, he would fly in every two weeks to come and see me. I know Lucy got in contact with him as soon as I was on life support. And he flew out that night. And he was in Winchester while I was under. And he was there when I came around. And then after a few weeks, he went back to France. But he'd fly in every two weeks to come and see me. So I was always looking forward to that, that weekend when he'd come over. And um, towards the end, I was getting really panicky about going home because I had no idea how it was going to work out. You know, how was I going to be of any kind of use to Lucy? Um, how was I going to be a dad to Sam? How was I going to put my own clothes on, you know, get a drink myself? All these things we didn't have answers to until I got home. And he flew back the last weekend and he, you could see that I was visibly troubled by, you know, going home. He said, you know, you should be looking forward to it. And I said, well, I am, but, you know, I don't want to be a burden. At that point, I'd been a burden to the health service financially. I didn't want to be a burden when I got home. And he said, look, you mustn't worry about that because I've given up my job in Courcheval and I'm going to move in with you, Lucy and Sam. And then you and I can figure out how we do all these things. So as soon as I got home, he was there and he was like a, a mechanic for my wheelchairs. He was the guy that would angle grind the outer prongs of a fork to give me the ability to get the fork into my mouth, which at that point was the size of a 1p coin. <laughs> you know, and it, it, you know all these things we had to navigate around. He was a he was an occupational therapist. He was a physiotherapist, personal trainer. I mean, he just in, he encapsulated everything really in those first six months I was home. So he was a, a huge a, a huge benefit to Lucy and I. And um, albeit it was strenuous because, you know, not many people live with their best mate and their, <laughs> and, and their son. <laughs> and at times it was a bit fraught. Um, but I certainly couldn't have, you know, Lucy knew that when she went to work every morning, he was there and I was safe. And she knew that when Sam came back from preschool, Chris was there and, and Sam was safe. So, you know, he was a, a, a great peace of mind to lose for those first six months. And a huge, you know, a great guy for giving up his time. Fantastic. And then, but then I guess time came back for him. Time came around for him to go back to France. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another ski season so, loomed. He'd had the summer off with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He had a good time back in the UK with a nice bit of weather. And then he got back on the plane and went back in, uh, I think he went back in mid October, I think, for 2014. And then, yeah, at, at that point, we'd set up the Alexis Trust. Now, people, when they found out what was going on, they were incredibly supportive. Because of our, our work in hospitality, or well, Lucy's work, not mine, I was more drinking that, that she worked <laughs> within it. Um, lots of people were, oh my goodness, that's horrific. How can you get a cold and then end up losing your limbs? So they would, um, they'd leave huge chips at the restaurant, the Greyhound, they would do Tough Mudders, Iron Man's, you know, all these sorts of weird and wonderful fundraising ideas, skydives and everything. And so all this money, this outpouring of love and money was coming in um, because we knew that my rehab and wheelchairs and prosthetics and everything else that I would require um, 
in my life were hellishly expensive, you know, millions and millions of pounds. So the trust was set up, and I think in about mid-November 2014, um, we took on Rosemary Court, who runs the trust for me now, and and she and I were then working really. You know, we were we were doing all sorts. You know, attending events, going back to schools I'd been at who've done some fundraising, and it got me out and about, um, which I needed, um, and it gave me a, a purpose at that point. And you've along the way you've done a documentary, and you've been on. TV hundreds yeah. of times now? Yeah, all over the world. I mean, I've had some really weird requests. One of the best ones we did was um, a TV company from Japan flew over and they filmed Lucy, Sam and I uh, in our old house. They filmed us for three days. And at the end of the filming, I remember, I think Rosemary and I spoke to the director and we said, um, uh, if you could let us know when it's going out, in Japan, it'd be great, and we could do some social media around it. And they said, "Well, we can't let you know that yet because um, we have to then when we go back to Japan, we hire body doubles to play you and your family." And I remember looking at the director, thinking, "How on earth are you going to find a body double that looks anything like me in Japan?" <laughs> I think that's one of the best ones they ever got involved with. But but um, what would they? And, but to do what? Then what? They re- reshoot the whole thing again with Japanese actors. Yeah, yeah, they reshoot the whole thing again. Needless to say, never made it on the TV. Which I'm very But we were. I think. I think. Um, so it would have been about June twenty third, twenty fourteen in June. We had a, an email from a guy, a lovely bloke in in London sent a very sweet email saying, look, I'd like to film a documentary. Um, I'd seen, we had press articles that had gone out earlier in the year and we'd gone all around the New York Times and down to South America and Australia, went everywhere. Um, and he'd read about it in Brazil. I think one of his family members lives out there and he got in contact with him. And he said, look, you know, it'd be great. I'd love to film you. It wouldn't cost you anything, but I'd come down um, and just shoot you getting back to family life you know, more surgeries. And I remember chatting to Lucy about it. She came in and see me. And I said, it does seem a bit weird, but, you know, what do you think? And she said, well, the only thing, I, the only reason that I do it is that in years to come, Sam would have a visual, uh, visual memory to look back on. You know, he'd see just how important the part he played in the whole, me getting through it, coming out of hospital, reconnecting yeah. with him. He'd see just what we went through um, and how much support we had. So in that respect, I agree with I agree with Lisa. So well, let's do it. Why not? It's not going to cost us anything. We'll we'll let him, we'll let him down. And this lovely guy came down, and he was unbelievably good looking. So I mean, women just flocked around him month after month. Um, and he t- and he's just a really lovely guy. And he filmed for probably two years straight, I think, um, almost three or four times a week. He'd come down the train. Um, I don't think we ever, he never accepted a cup of tea off us, let alone food or anything like that. But he just wanted to film everything that we did. Um, and luckily for us, Channel 4 picked up on it um, and they, they bought it off Leo and then they put in a great production team. Um, we had an amazing editor. I think we had Olivia Coleman do the voiceover for it. 
But we, Liz and I always thought that this would be a, more of a medical journey rather than anything else. Because Leo filmed all the pre-surgery, some, some, sometimes he was allowed into surgery to film. Yeah. And then obviously me coming around and, you know, being drugged up and saying all sorts of weird stuff. But actually when we, we watched the 44 minutes of the doc and the Channel 4 headquarters with a couple of directors and the, in the second in command of Channel 4, and at the end of it, it was, it was nothing medical about it at all. It was all about Lucy and I and Sam and how much love we all had for each other, respect we had for each other, and how we got through, you know, something that would invariably break other people, perhaps. Um, you know, why, why were we laughing our way through it? I think, and it was just a, a lovely testament, really. Um, and then, yeah, once it, it got on Channel 4 and, I think since then it's been viewed globally a hundred and something million times. And yeah, we still get messages now for people that have seen the documentary every day um, saying, you know, bigging me up really, which is great. You know, it's lovely to wake up, have a nice little message in the morning, you know, fist pump the, fist pump the day and all we go. Um, but it's been, yeah, it's, it's one of the best things we ever did. Certainly a very unique opportunity that something we were very glad that we agreed to say yes to. And we'll we'll share the link to that in the show notes so people don't have to go and fertile around Google to find it. Um, but one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was how do you end up, you know, you just alluded to it there, the, the resilience. What what do you think got you through it? What 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 have you done? Or or what can do you have advice for people, you know, on resilience? You know, there's people are not in the same circumstances you're in, but certainly the pandemic has put some people's businesses on their heels and is making some people miserable. Yeah, I mean, for me, the defining moment was right at the beginning in Christmas Eve 2013 when I hadn't seen Sam for so long, you know, and, and he was always in a papoose in front of me at the pub. Um, and I missed him desperately and... You know, I was in and out, in and out of theatre, in and out, sleeping through the day, and then the following morning back into theatre. And I think I'd had a surgery early, early morning, Christmas Eve, and then um, Lucy rang up. She goes, "Well, I'm going to bring Sam in today because it's Christmas." Um, you know, I know you're dying to see him, and I was like, "Oh my God, that's amazing! I could not wait to see my little boy." But I remember it got later and later and later, and it was about eight thirty, nine o'clock at night, and I could see double doors at the end of the ward. And I could see Lucy's head through the glass window. And then I could see her looking down at Sam. And as, as she came in, Sam was sort of looking around. And as they got closer, Sam then spotted the remains of his father almost in a bed. And he he recoiled in, in horror, really. And he hid behind Lucy's legs. So trying to coax him from behind his mum was almost impossible. And... They stayed for about, I don't know, 30 minutes, I think, and then they went. And I was just so dejected when they left the room. Very, very sad. Um, I, you know, I, I, I had no answers to me or Sam at that point. I didn't know how I was going to get better and, and, you know, be a good dad. I didn't know what I could do to make it better for him. And I think that was my lowest, lowest ebb at that point. And from then on, when Lucy, so that night, the nurses agreed to let Lucy back in with my Labrador come and see me. And that, 
and that and the, and the Labrador was pleased to see me you know and it was great and she came bounding in and there was about six other patients in the ward I think at the time five or six and they were all much much older um but when the Labrador came in everybody was perked up by the dog's exuberance the excitement on the dog it had a, it had the most uplifting effect and when the Labrador went that night I think that that's when I thought do you know what that's it now it's all about Sam and the dog and Lucy. Anything, anything they can throw at me, because I had numerous operations to come, hours and hours, with hundreds of hours almost, of operations to come. And I just thought, it's it's for them. What I do now is is for them. And I think one of the, a great question was asked when I just moved out of intensive care, so only about a week after I'd seen Sam at Christmas time. And a mate of mine came in and he said, um, I'm going to ask Lucy the question that you you don't want to ask. And I knew exactly what he meant. And he was going to ask Lucy, do you still want to be with Alex? You didn't sign up to go through this. You certainly didn't sign up to then be almost not stuck, but remain with Alex through this. You know, you need, you need you've got to be so in love with him to continue on this, this incredible, bizarre path that you're going to be on for the rest of your life. And I said, it's good. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you're going to do it, you know, because I'm, at the moment I'm just not strong enough to ask that question. And I only went away and she was in the waiting room and, I, and for the next few minutes I'm lying there thinking, oh my God, please don't say no, I don't want to be with him. And I, I couldn't see a, a way forward without her. And when he came back in, he was smiling, he said, no, you're all right, she's staying. And I think... Life would have been very, very different if she had said no. But luckily for me, she she wanted to be with me. You know, she fell in love with me. She did say jokingly that night, "I didn't fall in love with your legs. I fell in love with you." <laughs> so I just had them locked off. So I mean, we, we giggled about that. But it was from that from those points, it was always going to be about Lucy and Sam and the dog. Having a purpose and keeping a sense of humour. Absolutely. I mean, sense of humour is, is vital in any bad situation. Um, we had a, a great email from Chris Martin of Coldplay that said, you know, you should read Man's Search for Meaning by Frankel. And it was a very, I'm not a big reader, and I thought, well, you know, I've got hours of surgery coming up, so I might as well read it. And it did come from Chris Martin, so really I should be paying attention. He's quite successful. So I read the book, and he said, you know, there's something in that book that really strikes a chord with you. Um, and it was once you work out the why you will endure and how. And I knew then that my why was Lucy Sound, the Labrador, um, and the how was going to be living with amputations, uh, wheelchairs, surgeries, um, you know, facial disfigurement, all these things that I, I was going through. You know, I was going to endure that because I had a why to, to do it for. I think if I'd have been a single man on my own with no child, you know, no little boy, um, no Lucy, life would have been very, very different. Very different. And so how do you go from there to being the director of a number of startups at Imperial College? Well, I think I pretty much said yes to everything. I had to agree to the, the surgery on my arm. And I remember asking my plastic surgeon, you know, have you done this sort of thing before? She went, no, it's life. It's a world first. And I thought, I just thought that was, I thought it was amazing. And I thought, 
that's, that's really quite cool. That means I'm the only person in the world with an arm like that. And, and after that, I just agreed to anything that she put forward. She could have said to me, you know, do you want to go, um, you know, shuffle down the flight stairs in, in the corridor, you know, to go and get a coffee. I would have done it. I couldn't even move, but I would have done it for her. And I just thought everything that she said was like, she was a goddess in my eyes. Um, the rest of my family hated her because she was just cutting bits off me left, right and centre. <laughs> but you had to understand that she was keeping me alive. And when I left hospital and, you know, I got back with Lucy and Sam, I was approached by a military charity and they said, oh, you know, we've read about your story. I think you'd have, you'd have a great fit within our charity. Um, we've never opened it up to civilians before but you have the right mindset. And I never really thought about my mindset at that point. And I thought, that's very, that's very sweet. And I had a meeting with him. And I got on with the, the head of the charity, Mike, really well. And uh, he says, come on, let's go and do some skydiving a couple of weeks' time. And, he, he, he the and I went, no. And he said, do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, yeah let's do it. Why not? And I, I remember getting in contact with my plastic surgeon saying, do you think it's a good idea that I should go skydiving? Bearing in mind that I just had my right arm amputated at that point. You know, I was still having facial surgery. Uh, and I thought, oh, you know, what if I land badly or what if something goes wrong? And I remember I sent, I sent a text to her and she just texted back saying, yeah, why not? And from that point, we said yes to everything. So we went skydiving, we went kayaking, hand cycling. Um, a company that I bought my hand cycle from, they still put it out today that they were the, the the, I think it was the world's first wheelchair company to sell a hand cycle to a man with no hands. Um, <laughs> you know, all these things, we were, everything that we, we wanted to do hadn't really been done before by somebody in a condition like mine. So we had to think outside the box and we had to be willing to adapt mind and body really, as well as the will to carry out the, whatever it may be, with the kayaking, the skydiving. So we just figured that with all the opportunities coming our way, you know, maybe there's a chance that we could then look to get involved with, at that point, we thought prosthetic companies to help drive the cost down. But that, that proved to be very, very difficult. And we couldn't, we didn't really have an in apart from missing all the bits that required limb, you know, prosthetic limbs. And I just come back from the US and I was invited to do some public speaking and I thought, oh God, public speaking. And the last time I did any public speaking was when I was 13 in a Catholic boarding school to the rest of the school, reading a chapter of the Bible, and I hated it then. But I thought, I thought, you know what? And it was for physiotherapy students who, at that point, the curriculum had nothing, no information on amputees. And I thought, that, that's wrong. You know, that, that needs to be changed. So I agreed to do the talk. And I, got to, and I did the talk. I did about an hour in front of about a couple hundred people. And I loved it, really enjoyed it. Um, but another chap was there, and he was at Imperial um, doing a PhD in biomechatronics. And the US Navy were paying for his PhD, and he was looking into something called muscle whispering technology, or MMG. And it basically meant that he could strap a, a, um, a wearable piece of technology to my arm, and I'd be able to use the muscles that would fire to then operate my fingers to, to use a robotic hand to fix a satellite in space. Now, I thought this guy was just talking nonsense, but it was so <laughs> And I thought, you know what, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I've got to get involved in this. If it, particularly and, if it means uh, you have to go to space. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in space. Um, 
so I went to Imperial and I, I was their guinea pig, really. Um, and then it, it's transpired into working with probably 30-odd students, I think, Imperial alone. Um, once word got out that we were collaborating with Imperial, we got asked to become involved in Southampton. We now work with places, hopefully Bournemouth, um, hopefully Bath this year, um, Loughborough, we've done some work out. We continue to work at Imperial. Um, Southampton, we're trying to turn the south of England into a, a hub for um, musculoskeletal problems, MSK. Um, so we do a lot of work with the University of Southampton. And it's given us access to some incredible projects. But what we were seeing is a lot of these kids were doing these things and once they'd finished their degree, they were gone and all this kit was being left in just dark corners of rooms in Imperial. Um, so we, we worked with the guy, the original chap that I met at Warminster School. Um, and so I'm now a director of a company called Surge Technology and he's now making his muscle whispering tech. Um, we do a lot of Parkinson's research as well, which is, which is fascinating. Um, another one of uh, the Imperial guys, a guy called Nate, um, he and I co-founded a company called Koala. So we now make affordable prosthesis. Um, we're looking to supply Syria and Sri Lanka. Um, there's two countries at the moment. We've founded a project called Limitless, which intends to raise a quarter of a million to provide children with limb difference uh, under the age of nine with a free prosthetic. Um, which they can use. And we continue our weird, wonderful work down in the engineering department at Southampton, making fantastic wheelchairs and, and four-wheel hand cycles with solar panels and batteries and hiking it up Ethiopian mountains and getting to Mongolia next year. You went up Kilimanjaro, didn't you, On in a hand cycle? And no, we, we, are, um, we went up Ras Dashen, oh, which okay. is in the Indian mountains in Ethiopia. Yeah, we... Uh, yeah, it was a two and a half year project, um, bank packet idea, as all the best projects are. And it kind of morphed into this incredible vehicle. And yeah, we, me and another double amputee lady called Emma Bet, um, over in Ethiopia, a team of 14 of us then cycled up their highest mountain, which is about four and a half, I think it's 4,550 meters high. So it's a, it's a monster. Um, and yeah, then we're going to, we should have gone to Mongolia this year with a new and improved version and um, built for sand dunes and tracks. Um, I think I'm out in the Salisbury Plain next week, thrashing that around the tank tracks. Giving it, giving it a rundown. Yeah. Yeah. Giving it a thrash. Um, yeah. And it, you know, the Ethiopian trip was special because the work with the military that I did was fantastic, but it was all, it was all self-development, self-improvement. Um, I didn't feel that I needed to do much more of that. I needed to then get involved in a project that I could then work on and monitor over the years. And we decided to uh, raise 50 grand in London about two years ago. And we, we kind of created a new wheelchair facility on the site of an international school in Bapadar, where we now make affordable wheelchairs for $200 a piece. Fantastic. Um, to community. Yeah, I mean, we, we're looking to do some work with the Red Cross in the future. I think we're going to try and get the cost of the wheelchair down to under a hundred dollars. Um, and now we're looking into more assistive technology, but battery technology. Um, so any kind of 
affordable battery that can be put onto the uh, off-road wheelchair, off-road trike to mean that the mountainous regions can become accessible yeah. for people with disability in the region. Um, it's a massive market. And I think the, the more I've been in it in the last six years, the more I realise that it's incredibly underfunded um, and you do have to be incredibly wealthy to have all the right equipment that you may need. Um, I'm very fortunate with my situation in the UK, but it's still expensive. You know, I still need about three million quid, I think, um, for prosthesis, for wheelchairs, for liners, for legs, for stubbies, all the different bits and pieces, attachments. It's hellishly expensive. Um, but, I, you know, I've, I've got a chance of trying to raise the money, earn the money. Um, you know, somebody out in Ethiopia trying to raise five and a half thousand pounds for a wheelchair, well, that's five and a half, that's five and a half years worth of gross salary for the average Ethiopian. Yeah. So it's just not feasible. Um, so the, the work with Imperial and the work with Southampton will hopefully go a, a, a way, a partial way into trying to improve that situation. Not just in Ethiopia, but obviously in a global, global uh, disabled community. And if you've got some links to that, we'll send them through. We'll put those in the show notes as well so yeah, people can link through yeah. to see, see some of that work and if they want to get involved, how they can, how they can help. The, um, yeah. There's a question I ask every uh, guest on the show, Alex, which is what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? The hard work pays off. <laughs> I think that was so, so bone idle before I fell ill. It was just shocking. I, I really don't know what Lucy saw in me because I just, I was terrible, you know, and I, I just assumed that, you know, a relatively good-looking, nice smile would get you anywhere. Uh, and I, and I, I just didn't – I never had the right job. I was in and out. You know, I left college, never went to university, and, and I regret that. Um, and I set up a company. It was a decorating company. did very well. Um, you know, we employed about 11, 12 guys at one point. But it just wasn't for me, you know, and I, and I didn't put – I probably put 30% of my effort into that company. Um, and then luckily for me, Sam came along. Uh, and then I just thought, well, I'm going to stay at home bad now. I can coast. This is, a, this is the best job in the world. Um, and then the, obviously the pub then came. And I realized, my goodness, I don't have a clue what I'm doing here. And, it, and obviously the drinking became out of control. I mean, I was caning alcohol day in, day out. Um, and then did everything that I possibly could to try not to work. Uh, and when I fell ill, Lucy rightly said, "You know, you, the old Alex is gone. I'm not living with I'm not living with the old one again." And I think if I hadn't have fallen ill, I wouldn't be with Lucy now. She would have kicked me out. Probably, I was I was within a year of being dumped. I should think, in in reality, um, because of my attitude and because of just no ambition I, I just didn't know what the hell I wanted to do and then falling ill it's given me the most incredible and um, spectrum of opportunity and work which I now want to be involved with and I think in a situation that I'm in and all the the support that I've had my life can only go one way now and that's to make it better for others 
with everything that's gone on with losing my limbs and legs and arms and everything else, I think that the biggest driving force is having the ability to help people like me in, in a similar condition. Whether it's navigating the health service, whether it's, you know, wanting to get involved in universities, whether it's, you know, affordable technology, um, whether it's just a, a, an ear, a shoulder to cry on, whatever it is. You know, the last seven years, we've learned a huge amount about who we really are, I think, Lucy and I. You know, and Sam, who, who he's turned out to be, which is a, an incredibly grounded, funny young man. You know, he rips the piss out of me mercilessly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great and I, you know I, I feed off that you know Lucy just the same <laughs> um, and it's yeah I think the, the effort that I put in now to being a dad as well as working I, I just never had it before didn't have it Fab um, you've mentioned uh, your Man's Search for Meaning that was recommended to you by Chris Martin of Coldplay are there any other books that you've picked up along the way that you have been useful or inspirational that you think people should pick up and have a look at? So I, the, the beginning of lockdown, again, I had this, this moment where I thought I should read more. I'm not going to be going out anywhere anytime soon. So I won't sit <laughs> what, what's on Apple book. So I, I was searching around and I, you, you know, I was just you know, browsing the internet and I picked up something called um, When Breath Turns to Air by Paul, Kalanathi, I think, an incredible book about a, 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 a one at work. He turned out to be a neurosurgeon, but you know, when he he was almost on the cusp of the pinnacle of his career, and he found out he had brain cancer. Now, reading, he always felt he had a book in him. It was beautifully written. He could have been a fantastic English literature professor, language professor. He was a very very talented writer. But reading that. And the, and the amount of effort and strive that he put in just to get to within days of the one of the, the highest regarded, job, regarded jobs in the US, regarded in, the, in, his, in his field, and then to find out that life has dealt such a blow. Um, it was beautiful when I, you know, I think his wife finished the book off. Um, and when I put the book down, it just reminded me how lucky I am still to be here. But I'm the other way around. I now have been given the chance of life to get to that point where he was when he was told that he was going to die. And it, it just, I don't know, something clicked when I read that book. It was, it was beautiful. Emotional, another hard read. I think I enjoy these hard reads. I think I like, uh, I, I like the, the struggle, I think. I think I can see the, the beauty and the benefit in the struggle now. Alex, that's thank you very much for that recommendation. Thank you very much indeed for chatting with me today. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.